I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 104. The idea of serving in the military with IBD has come up over the years in my work as an advocate and educator. During my research, I discovered that IBD was usually considered a disqualifying condition. In particular, a diagnosis could prevent a person from enlisting in the military. And in fact, I've talked with a few people who served in the military and were discharged after they were diagnosed with a form of IBD. That's why when I saw Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Nelson in the national news, I was immediately interested and I wanted to bring his story to the patient community. He has a thriving career in the Air Force, but he also has ulcerative colitis. His disease was severe and he had surgery to place an ileostomy. From Minnesota, let's welcome Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Nelson. Lieutenant Colonel Nelson began his Air Force career shortly after graduating high school. He didn't have a concrete plan, but he knew he had a passion for aviation. Um, I've always had a fascination for it, and I didn't care at the time if I was working on them or flying them. I mean, honestly, there was always that ambition to fly them, and really what it took was, I think it was my sophomore year in high school, a family friend and his family took me on a trip to Florida, and just flying, that was the first time I ever flew. I'm like, this is, this is the coolest thing in the world. At the time, the only way I thought you could fly for the military uh, was going to one of the academies. But obviously, I joined the military for the college benefits. One of the job opportunities was an aerospace maintenance technician. I said, well, what's that? Like, where you're kind of like a crew chief of a C-130, where you're kind of like the go-to guy in charge of the maintenance on the airplane. I'm like, well, that's really neat. So I graduated high school in 2000. I went to boot camp in a two, uh, later 2000. I think it was November of 2000. Graduated boot camp the end of December of 2000. I went to technical training for um, maintenance. And I got back from there in May of 2001. I did one month of training at Little Rock. And that was really fun. And so I got back in about June, which allowed me to go to college the fall of 2001. And it was honestly... Uh, one of the great perks of the job was if the airplane went off station somewhere, you could go with it. You were that guy who would fuel it. You would clean it or you would perform maintenance on it when the airplane was on the road. And so I remember being on one of the, the off state, the TDYs, what we call them, temporary duty locations. And one of the pilots just came up to me and said, well, what are you doing in college? And I was just living, doing what anyone does in college, you know, going to school, having fun, meeting people. And he just said, you, you know, we can hire you. When you graduate, like, come again? Is this possible? So literally it was. So I took a couple more tests and I graduated college in 2005. I was hired that same year. And then in 2006, I went to officer training school. And that was in Montgomery, Alabama, where I earned my commission as a second lieutenant. And following that, I went to one year of flight school at Laughlin Air Force Base from 2006 to 2007. I was a class of 0714 at Laughlin. Um, and that's where you earn your wings. You become a pilot. Um, following that course, you go to, I knew I was going to fly the C-130. So I went to Little Rock, Arkansas for seven months for pilot initial qualification. And that's where they teach you to pretty much become a co-pilot. And that's um, every capability that the airplane has. Once you graduate there, I came back to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we're located. And I've been doing that ever since. I've been to aircraft commander school. I've been to instructor school. I am the chief of standardizations and evaluations within the organization. 
and I've been a full-timer there for about the last eight years. And really what that means is for us as reservists is I'm what's called a dual status technician. So during the week, I'm like a federal employee, but then on the weekends or anytime I do military duty, I can easily swap over to that role. So I came back from school as a second lieutenant, and now I'm a lieutenant colonel. Um, I've served for over 20 years. I've done five deployments in my career, all on the airplane to you know areas such as Southwest Asia. I've been all over the world. I have over 4,000 hours in that airplane. In 2017, Josh developed cryptosporidiosis, which is an infection from a parasite called cryptosporidium. Cryptosporidium causes thousands of infections in the United States each year, but Josh had never experienced anything like it before. That's when his IBD journey began. Um, I have no family history of this whatsoever. And one of our, you know, our aircraft were getting modifications done, and that was down in Mississippi, so southern U.S., obviously. Um, when I returned, I somehow contracted cryptosporidium, which is a parasite infection of the GI tract, and I started to have just uncontrollable diarrhea is what it was. So I do what everybody does. They show up at their local healthcare practitioner and just say, I have diarrhea and I can't control it. And they started to prescribe me just basic medications to try to, um, I had to bring in stool samples. Then I started getting prescribed some medications for that to hopefully eliminate the cryptosporidium and let it flush through my body. Uh, but while that was taking place, I just was not getting any better. The diarrhea started and then I started to notice the blood in my stool as well. I ended up getting hospitalized pretty much throughout in November of 2017. And I had an emergency colonoscopy done the next day because I had a CT scan that showed massive inflammation in my large intestine. And so they're like, this isn't good. We need to get this looked at. And uh, they couldn't tell me why or where this was coming from because in theory, the medication I was on for cryptosporidium was supposed to take care of all that in that time frame. So I had the emergency colonoscopy done um, the following morning. Uh, and a couple of days later, once I was discharged, um, I got a phone call from one of the doctors saying, you've been diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And this was November 2017. I remember thinking on the phone, what in the world is ulcerative colitis? Somehow my body's attacking the inner lining of my large intestine. It's like, are you kidding me? The doctors prescribed mesalamine for the ulcerative colitis. Josh did improve, and a few months later, he had a second colonoscopy to see how he was responding. His colon looked better, he no longer had any pain, and he was spending less time in the bathroom. There was something else that was concerning, though. His colon had pseudopolyps, which are not true polyps, but are scar tissue that occurs after inflammation has healed over. But this wasn't his biggest worry at the time. The problem with my job as an Air Force pilot is once the diagnosis landed with ulcerative colitis, that is a disqualifying condition for me as an Air Force pilot. Um, it's also a disqualifying condition for any member of the military because obviously we have certain requirements we need to maintain in order to do our job. So that was part one of the battle is how do I overcome and keep my job and stay in the military with ulcerative colitis. And the goal would be start a medication treatment. And as long as you're stable with clean labs, clean biopsies, clean scopes, and the medication is working for you, you should be okay. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. <laughs> Pretty much, I think it started in the spring, summer. And I remember going to the bathroom and I noticed blood. 
And I remember the GI people telling me that, you know, hey, if you see blood, we need to know about it ASAP because that's usually not a good thing, right? And so I called them up and they immediately put me on prednisone. And the problem with prednisone with me is I did okay with it around the 40 milligram to 35 to 30. As you begin that taper, I could never get below 20. And so the frustrating piece for me as a as an individual with ulcerative colitis was truly finding out how difficult it was to make an appointment with a GI person when you have blood happening in your stool. I remember calling them up and they're like, well, the earliest we could probably get you in is four to six weeks. I'm like, are you kidding me? I ended up getting hospitalized again because the goal of being hospitalized, and I would drive myself in. I'm getting uncontrollable bowel movements again, uncontrollable bleeding. I'm in pain again. Um, during that time frame, I'd also went from the mesalamine products to the biologics. Um, they put me on Humira. I remember every single time I started a new treatment was almost that glimmer of hope. Will this work? Will I be able to get my job back and continue to fly the airplane that I love to do? Um, with this treatment because every time I had a like a hiccup, I'm not showing that stability that they're looking for when it comes to the medication that you are on. And so that hospitalization that I was in was towards the end of September of 2018. So I haven't even been diagnosed for a year yet and I'm already having some massive complications. There were times where I was curled up into the ball, into a ball in the basement, multiple ball movements. And I knew where every single bathroom was from my house to where I work. After talking it over with his wife, Josh contacted the Mayo Clinic and was able to see the specialists there. They confirmed the diagnosis and added azathioprine to his medications. Because the University of Minnesota was closer, they recommended that he seek care there if he continued to get worse. Um, and that was the first time when I went to Mayo, was the first time I heard of an inflammatory bowel disease specialist. Um, so when I made it home um, from the Mayo Clinic in about the middle of October, I just was not getting any better. Again, I'm in a ball downstairs, multiple. I'm not even sleeping in the same bed as my wife because I'm out of the bed so many times. She has a full-time job. We have two little girls. So I remember calling my dad one morning. I just said, drive me down to the U of M. I mean, I'm, I'm normally 190 pounds, 5'10". I'm getting, I'm not eating. So whatever is coming out of me is everything that's mucus, abscess, that's just destroying my colon. Um, and it's becoming 18 to 20 bowel movements in a day. And so he drives me on down. And the great thing about the University of Minnesota Medical Center I love is once they finally admit you, um, you meet everybody. Um, your floor care team, the inflammatory bowel disease specialist who I finally are meeting with and the colorectal team. You know, they kind of give you everything um, when you first get on in there. So at this point, um, they're saying, yep, Humira is not working for you. your body, is not reacting to Humira. Now we're going to try Remicade. But Remicade didn't work either. Josh was running out of options. He was hospitalized for close to a month. He had several more colonoscopies, and it turned out that none of the medications were working to treat the ulcerative colitis. He was in constant pain now and was becoming malnourished. He found himself in the bathroom every 30 minutes, and at times he lost control of his bowels. That's when his medical team approached him about making a new plan. They determined that it was in my best interest to have my colon removed. And I remember about a day before I had the surgery, uh, the floor care team comes in and they kind of sit you down like, hey, 
how are you doing psychologically? You know, are you okay with the decision that's being done? I'm like, I don't care what it is that you do. I want this disease done with. Once the decision was made to have my colon removed, now we can, and I was so malnourished at the same point. It was getting frustrating because during that whole time, I realized what the disease did to people. It made you a prisoner in your own home. It made you a prisoner to the proximity of a toilet. Anywhere I went, it wasn't, am I going to have fun here? Where's the bathroom in case I need to go? It took your it takes your quality of life away. I mean, I'm not even worried about my job at this point. I just want to get better. I want my life back. And I remember uh, meeting my surgeon when I first got there. And I, I remember him telling me, he's like, I have a feeling I'm going to see you later. I was like, well, what is that? You know, did he just know something I didn't at the time where if I'm just not responding to medication, sooner or later, I'll end up under his care and have my colon removed. So the day comes where I have my first surgery, and that's obviously the one where they t he took about 75% of my colon out. And uh, my mom and my wife were down there while I was having the first surgery. And when he came on out um, to meet with my wife and my mother, he's like, we made the right decision. Like his colon was com destroyed. It was abscess. It was ulcified. It was a deep purple. It was so inflamed. He's like, I don't think we, I don't think if it wasn't for the surgery, I do not believe he would have overcome this. But I do remember before I had that first surgery, he said, and you will feel better. I didn't know what he meant at that time, but he was right. I mean, the next day the pain was gone. And it was at that time that I said to myself, never again. And people asked me, well, what does that mean? I said, never again. Never again will I allow myself to become that ill, um, that malnourished, that unhealthy. And that triggered something in my brain. And that's kind of something I've always lived to now is keep your head down, keep moving forward, one foot in front of the other, no matter what, don't ever quit. And one of the follow-up appointments that I had with them, you know, where they gave me that time in between both surgeries to figure out if you want the internal pouching system or if you want to have your ileosity permanent. And all it took for me was the disease can still attack that J-pouch to take it out. I want nothing to do with this. I said the final surgery was February of 2019. That made my ileostomy permanent, and I haven't looked back. I'm someone who lives with no medications, no restrictions, um, no special diets, and I do not care that I have an ileostomy hanging off my abdomen. I wear it proudly. It gave me my life back. It gave me that second chance. After his ileostomy, Josh was getting stronger and returning to health. The next step was to get back to his job as a pilot in the Air Force. But I was approved um, to return to flying status November of 2019. So it had been about two years since I was initially diagnosed to get back into the airplane. There's no greater honor or responsibility than being, being given the hands to the keys of the C-130 and have your leadership say, go execute your job. Going through my medical process, that is why I fought so hard because this is something I worked so hard to get to. Um, I love to do it. And one of the greatest things I think I came out with was my relationship with my surgeon. He knew what I did. And that and it even applied to the civilian medical staff is I was completely open and honest with them what I did and how important it was for me to try to get back to that. So doing well in the fitness exam, um, proving and showing to them that I could still do my job 
even though I have an ileostomy. You know, taking care of myself mentally, emotionally, psychologically, everything to show that I went through this transition, but I do believe I came out better in the end. My surgeon was instrumental because the military medical staff does not have the expertise that the civilian industry does. But there were concerns such as, what if the bag explodes in flames? What happens if you operate in darked out conditions? What happens if you operate in high altitude on pressurized conditions? What about high G environments? What about, um, I think the verbiage they used was not compatible with military aviation. What does that mean? No one could tell me. So it's overcoming that. I mean, we have, my case went up to the headquarters Air Force Surgeon General, the highest it can go. And I remember seeing something on a piece of paper. That individual said, thank you for your recommendation. We find this medically acceptable, stamped approved. And when I was told, I was completely prepared to accept you're, you're not coming back. You're going to be medically retired because I have over 20 years of service. And so we were prepared for that. And to have that phone call and say, congratulations, he's like, we, we, we did it. And I just about fell over. I mean, my squadron members, I cried because the amount of stress that came off of my shoulders, knowing that somebody believed in me, I'm a piece of paper. No one has ever seen me. No one has ever met me face to face. I am a piece of paper. So somewhere on that piece of paper, we did a good enough job for someone to go, maybe this is okay. I cried. I broke down. I'm pretty sure one of my bosses pulled out the scotch and we had a shot or two. Just because that's how many people were rooting for me. And so far, we've been pretty successful. I have not run into one complication at all. Never had an issue in the airplane with an ileostomy. Everyone at work gives me crap, no pun intended, right? You know, we have a bathroom in the back. And, it, you know, it's not as glamorous as an airline bathroom. But, you know, dang it, there's a chemical toilet. There's a curtain around there. And I've even experimented with it. I've walked back there and done my stuff. And I'm in and out of there in like three minutes. I don't even know what I'm doing. One thing that new ostomates have questions about is flying and how it will affect their appliance. Josh and his team had those same concerns but flying a military aircraft subjects him to bigger extremes in altitude and pressure. He explains how he manages while working and gives advice about flying after having ostomy surgery. So in my first year of being allowed to return to service, the goal was to kind of exercise the envelope of the ileostomy. Every concern that they had, so I did a cross an off-station trainer at TDY to Yuma, Arizona. We were supporting a special operations unit down there. I had a very senior guy with me too, just in case something happened, you know, he could still fly the airplane um, if somehow my ileostomy exploded in flight. Also had senior crew with me on that one just to kind of monitor me and see what we could do. So one of the lifts that we did with personnel is we had to go up to 25,000 feet unpressurized. Um, and our books tell us that if we go above 20, I need to pre-breathe oxygen for 30 minutes and I can't get I have, uh, what was the term? I can't get above 16,000 feet, um, or I'm sorry, 20,000 feet unpressurized until I have 16 minutes of 100% oxygen. Really what that does is it gets rid of the nitrogen in your blood. So when you come on down, it, decre it decreases the chance at like a decompression sickness. So I have my oxygen mask on, and, you know, we're sitting on the hoses, breathing this stuff in. And that's the time we went up to 25,000 feet. We, we kind of go up slow. 
you know, because sinuses, ears, we don't want to do any damage to people on that. But that's when I said, oh, oh my, what is my bag doing? And I touched it completely flat. And the reason why that was is because before I hop into the airplane, I always empty the contents of my bag, even if it is empty. Because the bags are so nice now to where you can pretty much squish out all the air that may be in your bag. If I am flying for longer duration, I find those foods that uh, slow my system down, rice, oatmeal, stuff like that. I will prepare myself for that. And so knowing that I can go up and down from 25,000 feet all the way back down, the bag not doing a single thing gave me a lot of confidence that I can still do everything. Uh, we can also take the C-130 down to 300 feet above the ground doing 250 knots and then slow down. And the high Gs that they were talking about, and Gs are kind of like the force of gravity pushing on your body if you maneuver an airplane in flight. And so they're like high Gs. I'm like, the airplane's rated for two and a half. If I do three, wings are falling off. So it's like, that's not even there. And generally, when you do high G maneuvers, you wear a suit around your abdomen and the lower portion of your body because that pre helps prevent the blood from pooling to your extremities. If I was a fighter pilot, I could see where that could be an area of concern because my ileostomy sits right around that abdominal section. So if that suit inflates, I could have a leak or a blowout per se. And then a lot of the other ones were just, oh, by the way, if I need to empty the contents of my bag, good thing I got a bathroom in the back. We are a crew, so if something were to happen, which nothing has yet, there's someone else who can fly the airplane. And the other thing I wanted to bring up to a lot of people is, um, especially with flying commercially, is the fear of like gas forming and the bag expanding. And um, my knowledge of airplanes when it comes to pressurization is the example I use is say you depart Minneapolis. Uh, the sea level altitude is about 800 feet above sea level. So generally when you depart the location, you set the pressure altitude to about 1,000 feet. Your worst case scenario is going to be going from like Minneapolis to, let's say, Denver. Denver is about a mile in the air. Um, 5,000 some odd feet above sea level. And so when they descend, they will put the pressure around that sea level arrival. So in theory, the pressure does not change a whole lot in flight. We're maybe talking one to 3,000 feet at most. The only thing I try to tell people is just prepare yourself for it. You can always carry supplies with you. Don't be afraid to use the bathroom because everybody on the airplane is using the bathroom. If someone else were faced with the situation that you were faced with and was needing to go through this process to get reinstated, what kind of tips would you give them in order to bring it around so that they could get back to their military career? 100% be completely open and honest about what is happening. Your leadership, um, your medical support staff, start talking to people about what issues do we need to overcome and full disclosure and disclaimer out there, Every situation is different. In theory, there's kind of two processes. Number one is you kind of have to run through the medical process. And if you're ultimately deemed um, disqualified, then there is another way. It's called the exception to policy process. And that's where the general officers, the people who wear the stars on their shoulders, um, can override decisions. But we needed to wait for the medical process to run its course first before we could run the exception to policy process. Luckily, I never needed to get there. We are a volunteer force. The military does have the right to list medical requirements because at the end of the day, we need to be able to deploy. Um, we need to be able to do our job at a moment's notice. And that could be in areas and locations that aren't 
co-located to a military treatment facility. You might be on your own for weeks at a time with bare minimal support. As an instructor in the C-130, I'm still usable. It may not be actively flying an airplane in a, in a deployed location. I could be part of the, the support staff. You know, things can still be done. If, if I was at my, you know, seven to eight to nine to 10 year mark, could that decision have been different? I think so. Like I said, we were completely prepared to accept the disqualifying condition, but I wasn't going to go down without going toe-to-toe with people. I would have been completely satisfied if I gave it my best effort and was still told no, because at least I tried. All I can say for people who are going through this, there are resources out there that you can find. Um, your medical support staff has all the information that you need, and it it is unnerving hearing stuff such as, you know, an assignment duty limiting code, a C1, C2, C3, that kind of restricts to what you can do. Um, it is it is unnerving to hear a disqualifying condition, but a lot of things can be waived, which is what happened with me. The flying waiver is a waiver to a condition that I had. And if I looked up the verbiage for ulcerative colitis, for those who have had a colectomy, um, it says on there that they are granted on a case-by-case basis. So just that verbiage right there means that it's not the same for every everybody who has it. But I try to tell people there's more to life than just serving in the military. I get it. It's fun. The camaraderie is there, and this is what people want to do. But health is what's important. Family is what's important. Um, finding something. You can always find something else to do, something that will make you happy. But none of that stuff is going to matter um, if you're not healthy, if you're sick, if you're struggling with the, the active disease, or you don't have the support of even your own family, it's going to make things a lot more difficult. So um, my recommendation to a lot of people is always just to be open and honest with yourself. Forget about what you're doing right now and focus on what can I do to overcome and manage this disease because that means it'll take you down. Josh is grateful for the technology that saved his life and allowed him to continue with the career that he loves. He found that being adaptable and open with everyone around him, from his colleagues to his family, led to a better outcome. He has a message of hope for others who may be facing surgery for their IBD. But I can truly say my life has not changed or nothing has changed for me. Having an ileostomy flying an airplane with now versus what it was before. I cannot tell you how pleased I am with the surgery, the results I've had. I'm not afraid to jump in the water. I swim with the girls all the time. To tell people that there's nothing to be afraid of having an ileostomy. I mean, I wear mine vertical half the time with a stealth belt is what I use. Um, it saved my life. It gave me my life back. I think if you asked my wife, um, my two daughters, seeing dad get sick was probably not an easy time for them and wondering what our life is gonna be like if we cannot overcome this. To what I am now is you're happier because I'm not scared anymore. I'm pretty fortunate. Hey, super listener. Thanks to Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Nelson for sharing his story. His experience shows us how ostomy surgery is a life-saving procedure and that it's even possible to fly planes if you have a stoma. Links to more information about the topics we discussed is in the show notes and on aboutibd.com. You can follow me across all social media as About IBD. If you want to leave a voice message for use on a future show, 
you can contact me at speakpipe.com slash about IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. About IBD is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Max Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. Oh,